Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. Episode 38, Accessibility Issues for Game Designers. Recorded at Metatopia 2013. Presented by Russell Collins and Jason Pitt. we just talk a bit about ourselves and then we'll just talk about some of the things that interest this and if it's just me telling you what I know about this then great that's fine by me because I'll still have something to record and there won't be any pressure for me to be right would you like me to introduce myself yeah as, a, as a nice starter okay. introduce yourself and I'll pick up yeah so uh, my name is Jason Pitt from Genesis of Legend Publishing uh, I'm a Canadian designer publisher, and one of my early members in my various gaming groups uh, had a fairly significant visual impairment, hmm. which forced me to start considering all these many factors that so many publishers overlook. Mm-hmm. Add into the fact a bit of a family history of a cognitive challenge. Mm-hmm. It was rather severe. She mm-hmm. was ward of the state. Oh. I'm cognizant of a number of these challenges and opportunities mm-hmm. uh, for making more, quite frankly, for making better products mm. that simply work better for everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm Russell Collins. I'm the designer of Tears of a Machine. Uh, I pitched the game, including um, with the concept that I would create an accessible version of the game as I completed it, that I would release it as uh, text and as a digital talking book to serve the needs of blind and dyslexic gamers. Uh, In my day job, uh, I've worked at Learning Ally for almost 14 years now. And Learning Ally is an organization that uh, provides resources for blind and dyslexic learners. Um, you know, in the early days, that was just creating, you know, books on tape of their textbooks. Uh, that expanded now, and with the more modern approach, we have the digital talking book product. Uh, but we also do a lot of other things, just to provide uh, companies and parents and teachers with a better understanding of what these uh, these learning differences and what these impairments are so that they can you know, be better educated and you know, be uh, better equipped to assist and work with uh, students with learning differences. So, um, now you said you, know, you, you had that personal connection, which is good, because you know, my, my connection, my personal connection to the subject of dyslexic gamers uh, was kind of limited at first. It's one of those things where I, in hindsight, realized that one of the gamers of one of my long-running groups did not read the texts, evaded reading the texts, insisted that you know things be taught to her again and again at the table, and she was basically covering, you know, basically passing uh, in order to avoid facing up to that uh, learning difference and, you know, facing the embarrassment of it and so on. Uh, because when, you know, it's a lot of these impairments are exclusionary and they upset people. You know, the people who suffer from these impairments have to uh, work through them very differently. They have to deal with, uh, well, a lot of prejudice really that comes up against them. And 
I think one of the big parts of Learning Allies initiatives now is to try and remove some of that uh, stigma that can go along with them. Uh, one of the big pushes now has been uh, the One in Five initiative, where uh, studies have shown that one in five people has some mild form of dyslexia or some other cognitive or print impairment, and they could benefit by having you know, their texts or books in alternative formats, which, uh, you know, said to me that really, where are the gaming books that are doing this? You know, so many of them are just, it's a textbook, it's a huge, you know, several hundred page uh, document, it's full of charts and graphs, and they make it very pretty with lots of pictures and weird backgrounds underneath the text, and they do all these things that make this book uh, a barrier to a person who has a print disability. Part of the main complication in the RPG industry is that we have so many audiences that we've been using a lot of these visual techniques, these barriers, mm-hmm. to try to broaden the context channel of the book and mm-hmm. try to communicate the essential elements we don't have enough context channels to be able to explain how how to run the game, how to learn the game, mm-hmm. uh, how to teach teachers, mm-hmm. um, to give context. Yeah, uh, it getting all of that information on a single page is incredibly difficult. Right, uh, having an image that can add the tone and mood mm-hmm. that. It can theoretically serve two or three audiences, and you can kind of manage to increase the level of communication because you have other games such as Traveler, for instance, Mm -hmm. which wasn't exactly rich in art. Right. It was actually probably one of the more accessible books, one of the first accessible books in our industry. Mm. But the challenge there was it meant that without that additional information that was uh, not added to the system yeah. it was hard for everyone to pick up and understand more than a superficial level right right yeah I mean you, you can go both ways really they know that there are, there's a degree of need to maintain attention and in order to try and get attention the same thing could be said of textbooks for young students in order to maintain attention they become very colorful and Active and lots of sidebars and you know cutouts and pictures and all that kind of thing, and I think that um, you know that has crept into uh, RPG books as well. They are they are very very similar to to you know to school textbooks, and you know sometimes the simpler book uh, avoids those distractions. But then, as you said, it really then focuses on the the reader who has that attention. Meaning, then we're cutting out anyone with any kind of attention deficit disorder, which you know, um, one of the problems with diagnosing, uh, you know, uh, um, learning differences like dyslexia is that they often come hand in hand with other uh, impairments, or they are mistaken for other impairments. It's very easy for people to look at a student who's struggling and just say, "Well, uh, let's try Ritalin. Works for a bunch of people. You know, ADD might be it." And you know, it, it takes real it takes real awareness of parents and of teachers and of GMs 
to recognize, you know, what is my child, friend, player, what are they actually contending with when they're having difficulty with this rule book? Is it something like uh, an attention deficit disorder? Is it something that's more closely related to a cognitive impairment um, and so on? I mean, one of my favorite facts about dyslexia is that it really is rooted in the creation of memories because we have a speech center in our brain that's focused entirely on listening and speaking. There's nothing in there about written language. All of our written understanding is all forged out of memory over years of work. So if a person has the mild inability to make those synaptic connections, then you know we have the, that sort of um, that sort of neurological barrier that can create dyslexia. And that is something that can be overcome largely through repetition and through presenting um, the material in a lot of different formats, giving people a lot of different ways to learn, which is why we prefer the term learning differences now, because these people are not stupid. They're, no. just, as, they're just as smart as you or I. Often yeah. smarter, because quite frankly, this barrier forces you to exercise skills that other people, people don't have. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, a, a blind um, user of an audiobook can listen and comprehend audio at a pitch that I can barely understand what's being said. But, you know, it, it, but it, it's a thing that they, they have their way to learn, and if you can serve that by providing alternative formats, then you can, you can really you know, open up the door to a lot of people who are excluded, who do see the book and see the barrier and are afraid to you know, be there and sit down with their friends and do something fun because it's not going to be fun. There's going to be work in it. There's going to be struggle. There's going to be you know, flipping through the book, rereading again and again. There's going to be asking your friends over and over, how does this go? How does this go? How does this go? You know, and, and frustrating them and stepping out of the game and, and all that kind of thing. And that's, you know, that, 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 it's not fair to have that barrier to something that is about imagination. It's about creativity. It's about fun, you know? Um, so there's a few things that I've seen that I think could be beneficial in uh, role-playing game design and publishing mm-hmm. that... I think is helping you serve multiple audiences. Right. Um, I'd like your confirmation. Um, (laughs) One of which is visual illustrations that back up something that's in the text. Mm -hmm. So those individuals with learning differences in terms of dyslexia Mm. would be able to see the visual illustration representation of a concept to reinforce what they're reading. Or in some cases... Place, yeah. So long as you also have the text mm-hmm. in such a, in, a, in such a way that screen readers of the like could still capture that, mm-hmm. I think that level of dual coding uh, would be useful. But mm-hmm. I might be wrong. Well, that actually gets into a lot of the things that we're doing at Learning Ally with digital talking books now, because um, we say that generally, because a dyslexic person can see an image, then um, you know. We can either rely on them to sort of make the connections themselves, or if it's the case of a very technical image, then we have to get into figuring out an alternative text version, a backup, an alternative presentation. That'll happen with things like charts and graphs, because we have lots of numbers and text in there. You know, and as good as the illustration might be, as soon as, as, soon as we start introducing text, we're introducing the possibility for confusion for a dyslexic uh, user. Now, as you said, having it as a reiteration, that can be quite useful. 
um, the uh, sort of staging of these things. Now, that does mean making your illustration a little more of a technical illustration, you know? Like, the color of it, uh, it requires a great, you know, a, a great amount of skill to pull that off. But the idea of having things like, in the, you know, in a book where they will have the example die rolls, and they'll talk about it, they'll show you images of it, you know, very clear images that immediately reinforce what you've seen, uh, I think those are very useful for a dyslexic uh, reader. Um, Jacob Wood and I, uh, Jacob runs the website accessiblegames.biz. He has dealt with partial vision loss since middle school that's been gradually degenerating. I mean, a lot of people who do start to lose their vision find that it grows worse over time. And so he's built in a lot of compensating mechanisms. But he was talking about how he always feels it's important to have the rule of three whenever you make a presentation, you know, whenever you present Hi. a rule or a concept. Hello. Hello. Hi there. He says that it's like a textbook. First thing you do is you tell people what they're going to learn, you teach it to them, and then you remind them what they just learned. And there are a lot of different ways we can do that. We can do that with straight-up text. We can do that with text and demonstrations. We can do that with text and images and so on, things that reinforce that, so that we have that rule of three in making sure that the, you know, the needs of, of a person with a cognitive impairment are served they get that repetition, and a person who even wants a quick reference now is a fast way to get you know to the meat of the rule or the subject. Right. A very useful reference for that specific technique in publishing would be Annalise by Nathan D. Pauletta, mm-hmm. um, which does that beautifully. Right. Um, in terms of introduction, teaching, and reference mm-hmm. summary at the end. And in a well-written textbook, you'll find the same thing happening. I think that's really the problem that a lot of designers face, is that they don't realize they're writing textbooks. They don't realize that they are writing what are effectively course books, that these are so... They really do parallel the kinds of books that they've had in their English class, and their social studies class growing up. Except it's even worse. Well, because yeah. RPGs are textbooks. Mm-hmm. Except you, it is... Hybrid English math textbook, mm-hmm. 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 and oh, by the way, we're meshing the teacher's guide into the textbook. Right, right, exactly. It's it's a very complex uh, number of elements that a, a designer is trying to balance, and you know that that does mean that that uh, you have to limit yourself when you're you're working uh, with the book, uh, recognizing your audience, recognizing who this book is is for. Um, Obviously, not every textbook is for everyone. Not every RPG book is for everyone. Uh, as I was saying in a previous presentation, there's no shame in wanting to, you know, uh, accurately detail the muzzle velocity of every single, you know, weapon in the arsenal and going through all these details and, you know, having an algebraic equation in your combat rules. There's nothing wrong with that. But just recognize who your audience is now. Recognize how you've limited your audience and who you've excluded. Um, I mean, I have uh, a book at home. I'm really enjoying it. There's an algebraic equation in the calculating damage for combat scenarios. I know I'm never going to play it because I'm never going to be able to convince my regulars that algebra is a good way to, you know, figure out combat damage. They will probably say, well, let's just use Pathfinder instead, you know, or something like that. Uh, and <coughs> that's, that's terrifying, using Pathfinder as your, as your simple, clean, <laughs> light mechanic well, compared to something. That's the other problem, too, is you have to know what people know. Yes. We always kind of have to go, I mean, as, as 
as advanced as some games have become, once a game is popular, that means there are a lot of opportunities for a person to learn it. Right. A person can learn that from a lot of different sources, they can see a lot of demonstrations, they can look back at a lot of uh, different rules, and so on. So we kind of have to see what we can take from that and move on. Uh, Jacob, one of his favorite system right now is the fudge or fate system, and I agree with him. It's a very straightforward system. It's very visually oriented for a dyslexic user, for a, a, a blind reader. Again, the, you know, the, the fate dice are very tactical, uh, tactical, tactile, and have you know the big X's and uh, lines on them. You know, a person with low vision can easily see those. They don't have to count pips or try and you know pick out a 16 versus a 19, a little tiny you know 20 sided die. Uh, and the rules uh, can be expressed in a lot of different ways. They can be done numerically for people who can go up and down the ladder by numbers, so that was a plus four, that was a plus five, or they can be done through um, adjectives, you know, fair, good, poor, excellent, you know, uh, uh, fantastic, that they have those, those um, other means of expressing your, uh, you know, your outcomes instead of just pure numbers. Uh, not to mention the de- delightful aspect of aspects. Right. Being right. the key underpinning mechanic is verbal. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yes. Which I'm certain causes other complications. Yeah. But I, I'm not as cognizant of the deaf gamer community mm. and the hard of hearing. That's uh, true. I, I know very little. I know very little about that subject yet. I, I, I would not be surprised if that's a challenge there. Mm. Um, but I was a, I was of the under the impression that they tend. To do more online RP, mm. play by post, etc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, simply because that format matches right. uh, their strengths uh, and challenges mm-hmm. in a more reasonable way. Um, one of the other techniques that I think would do a good job of um, overcoming some of these barriers is tutorials. Right. Um, right. Beautiful example would be Mythender, mm. uh, which is available for free on drive-thru and because it walks you through a very complex mathematical and tactical system mm-hmm. but it says now you're going to do this now you're going to do this now you're going to do this mm-hmm. and runs you through the entire system step by step by step by step mm-hmm. yeah the approach of tutorials says that you know uh, that, was that Ryan? yeah Ryan, Macklin. Ryan Macklin's game yeah, it shows that he understands the concept that these are textbooks you know, that these are things where you teach somebody and then ask them to do it. Yeah. I believe it's actually ask them to do it and then teach. Oh, even better. <laughs> even better. Uh, so, yeah, I believe that's a particularly useful one. One of my... One of the things I'm intending on doing, if I can free up the time and space, mm-hmm. is to actually podcast my own game, mm-hmm. uh, the Spark role-playing game. Uh, and release the podcast podcast explanation right. uh, and teaching of the game in such a way that whenever anyone is trying to learn the game, the designer will be bundled along with the book right. effectively right. by giving a verbal explanation in slightly different language of how the various systems work and how to go forward. Well, this is one thing that I've noticed is, is catching on in the board game community. Um, I bought the Bioshock Infinite board game. The front of the instruction manual 
uh, it's by uh, Colby Dow and uh, and uh, Plat Hat Games. The front of the instruction manual, there's you know the title, there's the illustration, and below that is a big box saying, "Go to YouTube and watch us play this game." Before they even like you know, it's on the front cover of the instruction manual. Watch us, you know, learn from from watching our demonstrations, uh, you know, uh, uh, to play this game, and then use the book as a reference. And I think that that's another yeah, that's another format, another way in which we could be. We could be demoing games, and we could be making them tutorial presentations. Uh, there's a, one game, um, Our Last Best Hope, mm-hmm. from Magpie Games, where they actually have QR codes embedded in the text, <laughs> and you, it takes you to YouTube videos, oh, where they go yeah, through yeah. and explain this, explain each rule and section. Uh, I want to do that now. Oh, that's great. That's oh great. yeah, it, mm-hmm. I haven't gone through those, but they are a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of it is that takes time and effort. Exactly. And exactly. For me, my choice is I can either do that, mm-hmm. or I can translate it into French. Right. Right. So, which audience am I trying to support? That's the question. I mean, we, we deal with a narrow audience already, uh, and so, you know, reaching out to uh, the disabled uh, and impaired gamer community, you're looking at a niche within a niche, and that's, that's time. That's intention. I mean, the week before I launched my Kickstarter for Tears of a Machine, I said to myself, am I really going to be able to do this? I mean, it's the summer now, you know, I don't have all these weekend commitments, you know, should I just not mention my desires and, and not promise and hope to like a few years from now get around to it and you know that was the week before the launch and then finally I just said to myself no this is important it matters to me I hope it matters to other people I think it'll help you know not just the, the not just my Kickstarter but hopefully the community at large and well it certainly did help my Kickstarter my highest my high tier backers uh, all made comments to me saying that they really supported the idea of books in accessible formats. And they really, that's one of the things that drove them to want to back it. One of my, um, you know, uh, high tier backers said that he taught his, uh, his cousin basic math by playing D&D with him over and over again. His teachers had, you know, like, eh, we don't know what to do with him, but he, you know, he... He taught him basic math, playing D and D with him, and got him through that stuff. And saw that you know there's potential for uh, an RPG to be a textbook in you know in a, in a sort of a class. Um, and I was really happy to have his support, and you know really happy to be able to show him how things are are progressing. Um, but yeah, that's the thing. I mean, some of it is easy. Some of it is easy. Some of it, to, yes, there's mm-hmm. so much that's mm-hmm. easy that I'd like yeah. to emphasize. Yeah. Um, Here's a beautiful example. So I offered, along with my game, a PDF, EPUB, and MOBI format. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What this actually means is I offered a complex visual version mm-hmm. with extra information for people who uh, might have reading challenges, right? and a version that's plain text that would work e- easily in... Uh, various screen readers and the like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The amount of extra effort for that is approximately zero. Right. Right. Yeah. The uh, the thing that, that the only challenge I'm seeing in that now with my uh, project is there is a bit of formatting 
that I have to do. I mean, I'm, get, I'm getting the PDF version made. I'm going to be making the EPUB version. I am also going to do just a straight, plain text version. Right. Uh, the concern I have with that is just making sure the pagination lines up, you know, because of the, how the format's presented. I need to make sure the right. page, page numbers, just in case people need to ref, need to cross-reference between things. Yeah, Which pagination is, is, the, is the nightmare. It is, it is. Especially with things like EPUB and Mobi, those mm-hmm. are... They're flexible, which is which is tricky. Uh, yeah. yeah. So the referenceability is difficult for that reason, right? Um, although sometimes just doing callouts to this heading in mm-hmm. this chapter mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, can be good enough. Yes. But there's a reason why we have such complex visual layouts and illustrations and mm-hmm. structures and references in the uh, standard default, right? Uh, PDF right version of the game. It's because we need all that information right. uh, to re- to do the best job in communicating the game. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, what was I going to say? There's a few There's other tagging. Tagging of PDFs is very useful. Yeah, right? but uh, tag the elements so that they can be read by a text reader or can be organized into sort of a narrative flow. That's something that Jacob has said, and that I agree. This is one of the problems we have dealing with textbooks, especially ones with call-outs and sidebars and footnotes, is that for a person to be able to do the like do an audio version of that book, it needs to be a straight narrative flow. So when you have a sidebar or you know a call-out box or something like that, it's something that you have to eventually be able to reintegrate into the text so that it can be you know, a narrative, so you can read it start to end and integrate that stuff. Now, having it as a bright call out on the page to someone who is, you know, uh, uh, who is looking at the page, who is able to, you know, to, to work from the print book, that's useful for them because, yes, that call out is usually a rule summary and important note about something and all that kind of thing. It's just that they tend to get shifted around in layout, you know, to make them more interesting. And, you know, really, it, it's whenever you have one of those things, you have to think, okay, well, what am I calling out here? Where does that fit into the narrative? Is repeating it here useful? Is it something I can put somewhere else? You know, it, there, there are a lot of questions that go, in, that go into things like layout and design of a PDF to make sure that you aren't limiting your audience beyond, you know, uh, um, beyond your intended audience. Um, oh, and example text. Don't forget example text. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Example text um, is very important, too. Yes. One potential idea for audio versions of this would be to have multiple readers. Mm-hmm. So here's my sidebar reader, right? And here's my example text reader, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. If you can pull that off, that would be a good way to have additional clarity, right? Uh, in which what is the context of this particular piece of speech? Uh, but uh, what are some of the other? Well, you want me to talk about I, my DT I, digital talking book format that I'm going to try sure, and use? Sure. Absolutely. All right. Sure. Well, the idea with the digital talking book is to take the text itself, the plain text, and actually convert it into XML format or an HTML format so that it is perfectly searchable, and then to integrate it with an audio recording, synchronized, and you know, and, and this is the most important part, navigable, right? so that a person can type in the text they're looking for. It will you know, skip to a part of the book with that and begin playing the audio matching up with that text. Or vice versa, a person can queue up the audio and the XML file will immediately advance to that point and begin highlighting the text as the audio plays so they can get that dual 
uh, uh, reference of hearing it and then being able to read it themselves off the screen and being guided through their reading uh, by that. So, I mean, the, the process for that is tricky. It does take time. It means I'm going to have to, you know, read and accurately record every word in, you know, 70, every one of the 70,000 words in the book. You know, make sure I'm doing it cleanly and intelligibly and accurately and with good audio quality, and that's where a lot of the time is going to go into it. I mean, you know, converting it to a text file and putting it up there for people's use, you know, that's that's relatively easy. But yeah, there's going to be hours of work to do that, and then to create the synchronized version to convert the text, get it laid in there, and then make sure that all the mark points line up and all that. That's It's intensive work. It's... Uh, it requires a lot of time and attention if you really want 100% accuracy. And when it's your own book, of course, you want 100% accuracy. You always want 100% accuracy. Yeah. You might not um, get it. Um, <laughs> I suppose the question here is, uh, how? what is the level of additional benefit for uh, you speaking through it? Mm-hmm. Rather than relying on on existing uh, screen readers, that's yeah. That, that is. Uh, what, yeah. I, I don't know where the screen reader technology is at and mm-hmm. how reasonable that is. I know ten years ago it, it was terrible. Yeah, yeah. Um, I am hoping that we've had enough advances to it that it's manageable, and the uh, gamer audience mm-hmm. following you uh, would benefit more from additional. Products and designs right. from you, yeah. Rather than the additional time investment through a narration, the narration is wonderful, but that's a lot of time mm-hmm. that could be spent on oh, yeah. designing supplements for the same right. game. That right. they can, if, if the existing screen reader technologies are good enough for their usage, they vary. Uh, I know some people who are, are 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 quite comfortable with screen readers, but one of the big things uh, uh, that Learning Ally has done in the past year is to try and work out an initiative for that. We've been working with screen reader uh, software, uh, and generally the feedback we get is our borrowers are okay with it, but they don't like it. I can understand. Yeah, they're okay with it, but they despise having to read and having to have novels read to them that way. That's no fun at all. You know, they, they need Audible. a human inflection. Right, Audible. Yes. Audible has done a lot of great stuff with that too now because they have, uh, you know, in partnership with, with Amazon, you can get EPUB versions of Amazon books that will automatically sync to the Audible. It has that DTB, that digital talking book functionality built into it. Right. Uh, I'm following the DAISY standard, uh, D-A-I-S-Y, which is the uh, international consortium of developers who put together a set of standards for digital talking books. I'm, I'm following their profile of creating you know, the XML synchronized through their file format to MP3s of recorded audio. Um, but the... Um, I lost my... lost where I was. But the, uh, the time investment, to me, is worth it. I kind of want to have that personal involvement, that personal uh, attachment to it. So I, I think it's worth it. It is going to be time consuming. It is going to be. It is a decision to put more time into this book. But the way I'm sort of seeing it, you know, this book isn't done yet. Right. You know, it, it's going to be printed. It's going to be out there in print format. It's going to be in a PDF format. But you know, I haven't finished publishing it until I have it in those other formats and until I have it, you know, up there for people to to access. So I'm kind of seeing that. Yeah, it's. 
It's time that could be used elsewhere. It's time that could be used in other games. It could be time that's used in, in other writing. But, you know, I've made the, the dedication of this time to this project. That's the way it's got to be. Certainly. Yeah. Um, and from a sheer mercenary perspective, mm-hmm. this is marketing. It is. This is additional. So it, it is an investment for that aspect that has to be done. Right. So, uh, one of the, uh, okay, I am a busy publisher with insufficient resources. Right. One option, um, which some people might consider, is putting up, uh, making a public statement right. about a product, um, let's say my own product, Spark, mm-hmm. um, making a public statement saying, here are the accessibility features I currently have. Mm-hmm. If anyone would like, anyone would like or requires additional accessibility features, mm-hmm. contact me, and I will invest the time to give you those appropriate accessibility features. Mm-hmm. Because, for instance, if I have no one interested in my game mm-hmm. with a visual disability, right? Is it worth it? it, it yeah. One option would be the moment that anyone with a visual. Uh, uh, Challenge mm-hmm. wants to get into my game. They tell me, yeah. and then I invest the effort immediately and start producing it for them. There's a good, there's a good side and a downside. Uh, you know, an upside and a downside to that. I mean, as uh, you know, the upside is, yeah, you know, it, it shows that you're reaching out to that audience. It shows that you want to hear from them. The downside is that there is still some stigma attached to it, and there are still some people who are going to be uncomfortable being the one who speaks up about that sort of thing. Um, you know, I do agree that you know something. It's always good to immediate, you know, take that immediate route of having the accessible text version, the straight text version, right, right, that can yes. be downloaded. And I think it's also good to have the offer of other formats that could be made available. Right. Uh, it's just the you know it has to be something that's presented in in a way that doesn't uh, uh, frighten anybody away. You know that, right. that we have to be respectful. Uh, I mean, that's always one of the biggest problems. Um, when you're trying to prepare this, you do want to be respectful. You don't want to talk down to people who have an impairment. Right. Uh, if they're interested in gaming, they're excited about it, they want to learn, they want to you know, uh, grow with it, they don't want to find out that it's just you know, been, been dumbed down and simplified for them. Right. You know? um, so you want to make that offer to them. You want to try and, and be respectful of their needs. Uh, and... You know, and uh, yeah, it it uh, it does come down to that that decision of, of time commitment. You know how how much demand is there, uh, and it might be best to learn about that demand from other people's work. You know, I have made the time commitment to get Tears of a Machine in accessible format. If no one ever downloads it, if no one cares, that's okay. I've learned a valuable lesson there. I'm going to keep producing them in accessible format anyway because I think I'm going to. You know, yes. I, I want to see this further. But that's the thing is that I I want also to be an example, hopefully to other publishers, especially big publishers, I'd like to hope, of, you know, of, of what this could be, what it could mean. And if things do swing in that direction, and I do see some great success with it through that, then I'd like to be able to go to people and say, yes, you know, this is really valid. We should be doing, you know, more to help this community. And if nothing's really coming of it, then okay, you know, I'm, I'm again, I'm not going to that, shame anybody that, for, for that making a decision. You've right. invested the effort Right, and you have made it available, and if it's possible that the audience 
has managed to get by without mm-hmm. some of the additional yeah. considerations and that they're fine with yeah. the less accessible texts. Yeah. And that that is a possibility. Right, right. I mean, not, all, I case, do, all I can do is offer. Yes. Yeah. If that's the case, then just give them more stuff yeah. that they'll be able to enjoy. In their, mm-hmm. But there's so many low-hanging fruit yeah. Yeah. that we can be... So many things that we can accomplish with very little additional effort right. that will increase the usability of our games, our texts. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that we, better we, writing. Yeah, better writing. I mean, you know, some of the some of the important things also that I remember talking about with with Jacob were things like keeping your math very straightforward. It doesn't have to be simple, but it has to be straightforward and it has to be consistent. Uh, I adore the setting of. I'm gonna I'm gonna bash a game here. I adore the setting of Shadowrun. Another game I'm never going to play because I'm flipping through the book and I'm reading about muzzle velocities and guns. And then I get to how a grenade works. And there's a diagram and there's a chart there and it's got angles drawn in and there, there are formulas written next to it. I'm like, oh, goodbye. That was, that was yeah. fun. That was a nice read up to that point. You know, having math that is clear and consistent is very important. Also making sure that your wording is clear and consistent. You want to make sure your key terms are used the same way every time. I rewrote big chunks of my book because I decided that effort is a game term. Once I introduce it as a game term, for the rest of the book, effort is capitalized and it is used when I am talking about what they know, how it relates to the game mechanics. Uh, I've got... I, I seem to recall there was one or two terms where I had to have the... I had to actually have the lowercase mm. version of it in addition to the game term. Right. In a few places. I'm trying to recall what that was. I used it lowercase in the introduction where it's just, here's the setting and environment. But right. as soon as I introduced mechanics and I called it, you know, I, I called that that number the effort. Yeah. Yeah. And it's tricky because, you you know, once again, you're, 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 you are restricting yourself. Uh, you are... In order to make uh, in order to make that that in order to make that concession, you are limiting yourself, and you're making your work harder. It took a lot, you know, longer to work through some passages there. I had to reword a lot of stuff. I had to go back and make a lot of edits. I had to go through, especially because I changed the term halfway through writing it because I didn't like the other one. Uh, <laughs> you know, I had to. I've never done that. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, fortunately, find and replace does exist so um, we do have that sorry, on our side fortunately find and highlight find and highlight yes so we yes. can go through them one by one mm-hmm. to make sure because otherwise you'll you'll, repla- you'll replace uh, yeah. uh, the uh, Da Wizard Da Wizard, yeah. Wizard is the classic <laughs> from uh, damage to Da Wizard Da Wizard oh man that's delightful uh, um, I, I didn't know about that one yeah I yeah like that. that's good that's good I forget what book that's, that's from but oh uh, yeah, that, that that was a search and replace error. That'll happen. Um, That'll happen. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, clarity in terms of as a designer, yeah. rather than as a publisher, mm-hmm. being clear and consistent with your mechanics, That's giving good them sense. The, That's good giving sense them, for whoever uh, your giving them is. the yeah. the complexity that benefits your design mm-hmm. and no more. Right. Right. That pushes you beyond accessibility and brings you into the range of um, games that are accessible to non-gamers. That's games that are accessible to um, young uh, gamers. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, if you want a, a game for teens, you want something with... Sorry. If you want a game for some teens, right. you want a game that's lighter in, in terms of mechanical complexity that they can jump into. And that requires research. A lot of, you know, a lot of uh, uh, writers... Uh, especially, I mean, that's the thing. There's a lot more amateur writers in the world of game design yes. than there are in, in a lot of other fields. Uh, but recognizing things like reading level, like mathematics levels, is tricky, you know? And I mean, that, that, that requires research. That might mean going down to the library and picking up the textbooks that the seventh graders are using yes. and flipping through them and saying, okay, what, what of this could I expect someone to be able to handle? You know, and, and, you know, like looking at, well, is my use of an algebraic equation for combat damage, does that, you know, is that something you'll see at this level, or is this something that says, you know, high school and only, college and above, that kind of thing. And the same thing with your word choices, your word usage, you know, what's written at a fourth grade level, what's what's writing at an eighth grade level, you know, what kind of word choices can I use, how many, how many you know, how many five-syllable words can I get away with before people don't know what I'm talking about? Um... One of the things that I had to do is, for my own game, Spark, mm-hmm. I had to, at a certain point, I had to rule out certain audiences. Yeah. Um, and that's because the game is about uh, challenging your beliefs. Mm-hmm. So it there's a certain level of philosophical and a testing and social mm-hmm. examination function mm-hmm. that, in, ter- in terms of just age... Mm-hmm. There's a number of people who are too young to be able to safely handle some of this material. Right. To, on questions of religion and euthanasia. Right. These are some very adult topics. Mm-hmm. So I made, I left some linguistic complexity as a bit of a filter. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I don't, I, I would rather. Alienate mm-hmm. the people uh, who are going to have fun, rather than harm people. Right. With my work, right. If, if that's the, if that's the the painful trade off, I will rather lose money and lose mm-hmm. people playing my game, so long as I can avoid hurting them unnecessarily. Oh yeah, that's that's yeah, that's that's a good <laughs> that's a good idea for everybody. <laughs> Which is a, a bad yeah. choice to have to make, yeah. but sometimes making your game non accessible is the correct decision. Yeah. Sometimes. It depends on your game and depends on what your audience is. Just realize that you're alienating people who would love to play your game. And yeah. think long and hard before you make that decision. Exactly. Well, let's, let me just uh, quickly, I know we don't have a lot of time left, let me just quickly get on to one other subject that I think, I think this is one of the barriers to this happening, really, is that the big publishers, uh, even with their open gaming licenses or whatever, there's still a lot of copyright control that goes on. Uh, there's still a lot of, of publishers who are nervous about doing this sort of thing. Uh, I don't want to name names, but there's a certain British game company that is fiercely protective of copyrights, that is uh, very nasty about oh, you using their... Sorry, yeah. the, that, the other British, British one I'm thinking of. I was thinking of, there's another British one which is the opposite to that. Oh, that's good, that's good. I'm, th- I'm thinking of one that involves uh, that involves suing people over the use of, of the word space and uh, a certain military branch. Ah, yes, yes. Yeah, that, that organization. But anyway, the... Um, um, uh, uh, the thing there is, you know, you... Um, 
you need to recognize that if you are putting these things out there in accessible format, you're making them easier for people to pirate. You're accepting the fact that, okay, I am, you know, if I'm putting my raw text out there, now it's a tiny file that anybody can spread around the internet for whatever they want. You know, and I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a choice you have to make. But I mean, that's the thing with open gaming license and Creative Commons the way they are, especially in the indie community, it's less a problem uh, for us now than it might have been a few years ago when there was a lot of concern about copyright control and piracy of, of games and so on. I mean, um, you know, uh, I was told stories as well of people who would buy the big 200-page rule book with all the fancy colors and, and all that stuff, but then they would go and pirate someone's illegal PDF version of it so that they could blow it up on screen and actually read the text. You know, they had legitimately bought this book, but because no PDF version was made available, this is just a couple of years ago, yes. no PDF version was made available, they had to pirate it in order to get it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, a lot of companies have sort of seen the light and they offer PDF versions of their books, which you can blow up on screen and adjust contrast in order to read it, you know, if you do have a low vision issue. But, yeah, you know, but there are some other companies that are, are you know, refuse to offer PDFs, believing that that is going to cost them all their money. Um, to I mean, which they my, to, to to my comment is, yeah, yeah. hello, I am also an RPG publisher. Mm -hmm. You might lose tens of dollars. Yeah. We don't... We, <laughs> I believe there's something to the order of... I'd like to say 30 people mm -hmm. employed full-time mm -hmm. in the RPG industry. Quite likely, yeah. Yeah. If you're doing this part time, what's the great loss of yeah. getting more people to play your games yeah. and experience your art? Exactly. A chance that someone will pirate when people can pirate and have pirated mm -hmm. things completely locked down. Right. It's I, I think it's a pretty easy choice myself. Yeah. Well, I agree. I agree. I feel that making things open and you know using Creative Commons and open gaming licenses and just allowing them to be accessible. I think that's uh, a great benefit because really it helps you build up uh, a good faith yeah. with your audience. They, you know, they recognize that you don't, uh, uh, you don't suspect them right. being bad people, you know, and you aren't limiting your audience because sim simply because of a kind of, of old fashioned fear of, yeah. you know, of loss. So, uh, I think we're wrapping any, up on any, time. Yeah. Any questions from the room? No? Okay, good. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> this seminar recording was made possible by the generous contributions of the panel speakers and the Metatopia Convention Organizing Team, Double Exposure. All of the Double Exposure conventions are amazing, and I can't speak highly enough of Metatopia as a convention for designers to meet up, to discuss, to test, and to learn more about this lovely hobby of ours. You can find out more at www.dexposure.com. And I hope you'll join us next year at Metatopia.